0: We're picking back up in Romans 10 and beginning in verse 13 this morning. We'll look through the end of the chapter. Um, Let me kind of recap a little bit about what we've seen uh, so far in this last section. We've gotten bogged down in Romans 9 and Romans 10. It's about to pick up, I promise. Um, But uh, basically how this all started, Paul goes on this, you know, Excursus in Romans 9 about God's sovereignty and election and predestination is because he's challenged the Jewish notion of who God saves and how God saves. And this is part of that larger question that he's trying to answer. He's really going to move into in the next chapter. What are God's purposes for the nation of Israel? And, and what and how does uh, do we receive the, the mercy and the blessing of God? Um, he began to answer that question in Romans 9, where he, he pointed at God's sovereignty in election and salvation. God shows mercy to whom He chooses to show mercy, and He hardens whom He chooses. That's, that was his argument. And the argument was, this is true, in regards to nations, and it's true in regards to individuals as well Pharaoh, Esau, Isaac, Jacob. Um, after the doctrine of election, though, so he uses the doctrine of election as part of the, the larger subject of God's purposes for Israel, he returns to that Israel question. And he states it this way at the end of Romans 9. What shall we say then? How shall we conclude based upon uh, what we just looked at on the doctrine of election? What shall we say? The Gentiles, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that comes by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Why? That's his conclusion. That's the answer that he turns to now in this next section. Why not Israel? The Gentiles didn't care about righteousness. Now they have it. Israel pursued righteousness through the law. They don't have it. Why? He answers that question because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. And this statement, based upon works, is what he elaborated on in the first part of chapter 10, which Chris covered for us last week. Again, he nails down the fact that pursuing righteousness, Christ has come to us bringing righteousness. We don't need to ascend to heaven or descend to the lower depths of the earth to find righteousness. It is near you. It's in your, it's in your heart. It's on, on, on your tongue. It is... Of course, that righteousness that comes by calling upon the name of the Lord in faith. So righteousness doesn't come to the law. It is a gift. It is given to both Jew and Gentile if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Chapter 10, verse 9. So the question now he turns to then If everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, then what is necessary for this to happen? What is first necessary for someone to call upon the name of the Lord? What has to happen? Of course, we're going to see. It's, It's believing, it's hearing, it's preaching, it's sending. I'll get into that. And then he answers that question in regards to Israel. Well, how, has this gospel been sent and preached and heard to Israel? Maybe that's why they haven't believed. Because these first necessary prerequisites, number one, haven't happened. And of course, he answers that with a yes. They have heard. They have been uh, sent to and preached. Um, which leads him into chapter 11, which will be next week. Has God rejected them then because they still haven't believed? That's kind of maybe the the exegetical outline, but I think more practically for us the questions might be, what is the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? What he speaks on today touches on that subject. What is the relation between God being sovereign, he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy, chooses to, he hardens whom he chooses to, what is that? how does that relate to our responsibility to, do, to believe and repent and trust in Christ for our salvation? Maybe the question could be, if God is sovereign over showing mercy and He's sovereign over whom He hardens, are we just resigned to our fate? That would be fatalism, if you've ever heard that term. There's nothing you can do to change your fate. And so... Don't worry about it. You just, whatever, throw your hands up and say, I can't control anything, so, oh well. Fatalism is not biblical. That's what I'm going to argue. Fatalism is not what the Bible teaches. And I think we see that in our passage today. All right, so. what we'll see is that God is sovereign, but He uses means to accomplish this sovereign will. God is sovereign, but we are still personally responsible for our actions and decisions. So with that, let's begin by looking at these first few verses in chapter 10. Romans ten, thirteen through 15 concludes what we looked at last week in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, verse 14, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, Paul asks a series of how questions here. If you look at the construction um, in Greek, it's very organized. There is a a logic and kind of a symmetry to it. How, 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 how? And he answers each question, and and it's like links in a chain. They all connect to one another. And they all build on one another. So I'm just going to go through the how questions uh, as an easy way to break this passes down. The first one is, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, how will they call upon him? What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Does anybody know? In, In the Old Testament, if you remember in the early parts of the book of Genesis, it speaks about, and then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What is that referring to? Cody? Faith. faith. Yeah, calling upon the name of the Lord in the Old Testament is, is, uh, is faith. It is, it's an act of worship. It's an act of approaching God. Eileen? Um, yeah, it would include repentance. Yeah. Um, faith and repentance often um, are used interchangeably, or at times they are, even though we distinguish them. Uh, because, you know, an act of faith is, in a sense, you know, turning away from self and turning turning to God. Mark? Calling out for salvation. Calling out for salvation, yeah. So calling out in worship, calling out in faith, calling out in repentance, um, any sort of, of approach to God, seeking His favor and blessing and reconciliation, in that sense. So Paul says... Um, to be saved, you need to call upon the Lord. Well, how are they to call upon Him? And His first answer is, they must believe. Before you can call upon Him, you have to believe in Him. Right? Think of, of Hebrews 11, in, in the definition of faith. Right? Um, just to briefly read it here for you. Speaks, you know, Hebrews speaks a lot about calling upon the name of the Lord, but uh, the language it uses is drawing near, which is pulled from the, uh, the, the language of the priesthood in the Old Testament, to draw near to the Lord. And he says in 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in that respect, so, so drawing near... Uh, faith, it's, it's, it's conviction, it is assurance of what God has revealed, even though we don't see them immediately with our eyes. So, first they have to believe. When we think about the idea of believe, um, maybe a synonym for that would better, uh, could be better uh, defined as faith. Um, how do we define faith? If I were to ask you, what is faith? I'm kind of looking for a catechism answer here. So, Chandler, <laughs> whoa, whoa, yeah, knowledge, assent, and trust is is how um, the reformers typically defined faith. Knowledge agreeing to that knowledge and trust in that knowledge. So this aspect, when, when Paul says um, here in Romans 10 that they have to call upon Him whom they have not believed or they have believed, he's hinting at the knowledge and assent part of faith. There is a particular content that must be known, the Gospel. There is a particular content that must be agreed upon. I agree, or I give my assent to the the promises of the gospel. That's what Paul is hinting at here. And so this is part of his larger argument. Salvation doesn't come via birthright. It doesn't come through ethnicity. It does not come through good works. It does not come through rituals like circumcision or baptism. But also, if you think about this, nor does it happen mystically. Bypassing the mind, the heart, or the will. You see that? To to be saved, you have to call upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord means you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That's what he's saying. So, when he, in a larger question of God's sovereignty, He doesn't just zap people. Just zap people in the sense of like, oh, arbitrarily, saving someone, hardening another. As if, on one hand, it doesn't happen apart from their belief and confession. As if it happens without their will being involved in it. Believing and confessing. Alright, next question then. If to be saved one must believe certain content, how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? Verse 14. You see how this logic of the question presupposes that the gospel is content that must be known with the mind. Because you can't believe if you never hear the gospel. Again, God doesn't just zap people out of nowhere and save them. There has to be a gospel that is heard and received and believed. And that's what he hits at here. Hearing is necessary for believing. Um, To believe, one must hear. That's that's his answer. Uh, Luther famously spoke of the ear as being the instrument of salvation. Salvation comes through the ear. It doesn't come through the hand, as it were. Good works. And many scriptures back this up. If I can have three um, volunteers real quick um, to look these three up and read them. Ephesians 1:13, Colossians 1:3 through6, and 1 Thessalonians 2:13. Um, who will get Ephesians? Ephesians 1. Mark? Who will uh, read Colossians 1? Ethan? 1 Thessalonians 2? Nathan? Go ahead, Mark. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Yeah. We get it very clearly. Paul speaking to the church... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon you and it sealed your salvation. They heard, they believed, they were saved. Colossians 1 3 6. Ethan. Thank you, Ethan. Yes, Paul speaking to the church. He's saying, we've heard of your faith. We've heard of your love. We've heard of your hope. Of this you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This gospel has come to you. It just as it is in the whole world. And this gospel, he says, is bearing fruit and increasing. And it's done so since the day you heard it. And understood, there's the mind grasping and assenting the truth, the grace of God and truth. Salvation to them came when they heard. And what I love about this is this passage, um, I could preach a whole sermon on this right now, is that this gospel is, is he's using the, the, uh, the tenses of the verbs and how he's speaking of it is, it's not just past tense, you heard the gospel and believed. He's saying, you are hearing the gospel. And it is continuing, the gospel is continuing to bear fruit in your life through your continual hearing of it. First Thessalonians two thirteen, Nathan. And we also thank God constantly for us that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is that work in you for Paul is saying, When we preached. You received our word, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. You heard it, you accepted it, and it is at work among you. Again, faith, belief, salvation, comes through the hearing of the Gospel. That is necessary for one to be saved. That is the, the impetus behind evangelism. In in, in missionary work, if people don't hear the Gospel, they will not be saved. So, how are they to call upon Him? They must believe. How are they to believe in Him? They have to hear Him. Third question. If they have to hear the Gospel, how are they ever going to hear that Gospel? And the the answer to that question is... Through preaching. Preaching is necessary to hear the Gospel. Hearing the Gospel is necessary to believe in the Gospel. Believing the Gospel is necessary to, be, to, to call upon the Lord to be saved. Um, here, I, I do want to emphasize, when he talks about preaching, he's, he's not just talking about Sunday morning. Um, yes, I think, you know, most specifically... Uh, that's the context in when most of the preaching in our lives happen. But, but really, he's, it, the, preaching the term is broader than just that. Um, this is the heralding, the announcing of the gospel in, in all of its forms and venues. Preaching, an ambassador proclaiming the message of the king is necessary to hear the gospel, which is necessary for salvation. Um, But here I have a question for you. Um, What or whom do they hear in the preaching? If you look at verse 14. I've taught on this so many times, so I'm not going to go into great detail. But I think I went through this both when we... When I talked through the five solas, and when we talked uh, in our series, "What is Worship?" Um, but look at verse fourteen, and I, I'm going to—I uh, got a screenshot of ESV right here. The ESV in verse fourteen: How are they to believe in whom, in Him, of whom they have never heard? And, and that translation gives um, the 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 impression or communicates that. People hear of Christ. And that's how they believe. They hear of Him. But notice up here, this little three in the ESV. A little footnote there. If you can see that. I circled it in red. If you look down in your Bible, about what that three is, it says, or, Him whom they have never heard. And I'm not going to go into all the details of the, the Greek text, but based upon the construction, based upon the objects of the verbs, based upon what it actually says literally, word for word, there's no reason, other than a theological reason, to change the text from of whom... Excuse me, change it from whom to of whom. Now, Do you notice the difference there? I have, I have heard of Luke. Or I hear Luke. What's the difference? I'm hearing Luke speak. Or I'm hearing somebody speak about Luke. Sorry, Luke. Him whom they hear. The point is, in the Gospel, people don't hear about Christ. They hear him hear Christ Himself speak. It is His voice. We don't hear of Him. We hear Him. And, and this goes back to the primacy of, of preaching over reading the Bible. Both can lead to salvation, absolutely. But but ultimately, preaching in the context of of the assembly of God, preaching in the context of, of, of a man who has been set apart by the church and called to such an office, preaching in the public assembly of God's people, preaching, announcing. We hear Christ Himself speak in His temple, in His body, in His church. God is present here. Just like we say when we dine at the Lord's Supper, He is present with us in the meal. Conversion happens when sinners hear the voice of Christ. And many scriptures back this up again. If I could have three more volunteers here real quick. I just want to show you this is not something obscure or isolated. John 5.25, who will grab that? Eva second uh, Corinthians 5:20 20 and 21 Mark Ephesians 2:17 uh, Madison ever Ruth Jesus speaking this this very important passage about resurrection and life. And if you'll notice, if you if you're looking at your Bibles, uh, verse 25 speaks of something that's happening now, and then down in verse 28 and 29, he speaks of something that's happening at the last day, the final resurrection. What is happening right now? An hour is coming. It's now here. When the dead, spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They hear Christ's voice. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul is speaking not of every single Christian in that sense, even though it is true that we are all ambassadors. He's speaking of the context of his ministry. He's defending his ministry here in 2 Corinthians 5. And he's saying, God is making his appeal through us, God is speaking through us. Appealing to you to be reconciled. they hear the voice of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, 17. Addison. Paul speaking of, in Ephesians 2, about the conversion. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He begins that chapter. You once walked. You were raised to life. But then he has this really odd uh, a reference here in verse 17 that Christ came and preached peace to you. And I noted when I preached through that last year, Jesus never visited Ephesians, that Ephesus. When, when could he say that Christ visited and preached to the Ephesian believers? Through the ministry of the gospel. Paul likens the preaching in Ephesus as Christ himself visiting Ephesus and preaching himself. So we could, trust me, (laughs) we could could talk about this for a long time. There are many other passages that back this up. Uh, We hear that it's a constant theme in Scripture. That's what we mean when we say it's the Word of God. But here we see it very clearly. That they hear him. And when they hear him, they believe. The voice of Christ leads to conversion. So then the next question: (coughs) Excuse me. If one, if to be saved, one must hear Christ's voice, if they must hear, which is, of course, synonym with the proclamation of the gospel. How does that happen? Do they just lying in bed one day hear the voice of God? Is it when they're out, you know, on a beautiful hike, they hear the voice of God? Is that how conversion happens? No. Preachers must be sent to preach. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Um, This touches on ordination. Ordination. The laying on of hands, the sending and commissioning of preachers. Uh, What's interesting about this, again, we could spend a long time here, but preachers don't send themselves. Right? They are sent. They're not performing the action. Somebody's performing the action for them or upon them. Like baptism. You don't baptize yourself. You have been baptized. It's passive action. Preachers don't send themselves. They are sent. And, you know, there's an orderliness here and a process in Scripture to sending and commissioning preachers to proclaim the gospel. So with that, just notice the links in the argument. How will they call upon him to be saved? They must believe. How will they believe? They must hear how will they hear they must uh, someone must preach how will someone preach they must be sent so they call because they believe they believe because they hear they hear because someone preaches and someone preaches because they are sent now i'm going to jump to israel here to conclude this section but but you see in the larger picture of how like God's sovereignty and salvation doesn't just mean we lay back and play dead. It doesn't just mean there's nothing we can do. It doesn't just mean we are passive. Paul is saying, look, these things got to happen. I'm reminded of um, William Carey. I I don't know if this is there's rumor that this might be urban legend, um, but um, when he wanted to go to India to preach the gospel, uh, there's the famous account of the uh, one of the elders in his church saying, "If God wanted to save the heathen, He's going to do it with or without you." Um, in the sense of, "Why do you need to go? If God wanted to save them, He's going to save them." That's unbelief. That's fatalism. That's not biblical Christianity. William Carey believed in the sovereignty of God. But he also believed, if I don't go and take the gospel to where it's never been preached, they will not be saved. He believed both. Because that's what the Scriptures teach. Paul concludes this section, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Um, He quotes Isaiah 52 here. Israel was under oppression They were beset by idolatry and God is promising this one day to send heralds with good news of their salvation and their restoration. Um, And the new covenant ministry of the gospel is the fulfillment of this. Even if those beautiful feet aren't always recognized and received as such. So the conclusion of this first section God is sovereign in salvation, but He uses means. In salvation, God does not act magically or mystically or by divine fiat. He uses secondary causes. Another way of putting it. One reason Paul emphasizes this is to communicate how God's sovereignty and salvation does not excuse Israel's unbelief. That, that's a question, right? Israel doesn't believe. Well, since God shows mercy... It's not their fault. God didn't show them mercy. He's saying, "No, that's 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 not right." And we participate in eschatological realities each time the gospel is preached and heard. We every time we gather and the gospel is preached, Isaiah 52 is coming to fulfillment, anew and afresh. So, the last section is only going to take us a few minutes. But are there any immediate questions on that? And we will return to the question of means and man's responsibility. But just on the text. Dick? So, when Jesus preaching, hearing to obtain salvation, to produce salvation, is that exclusive or is that the ordinary usual way? And is there room for someone being saved without hearing or being inwardly hearing from God through an you know, experience like a sudden illness or John Hughes, you know, being almost drowned and so forth. I mean, certainly, I think the ordinary, usual, primary method is hearing the word. Yep. But is there room for the other means as well? Absolutely, there is. Great question or comment. Um, our confession speaks of how that that is the ordinary way but God is free to work, Um, um, the language says, above and beyond the normal, ordinary means. Um, The only qualification I would put on that is that it always comes through the special revelation of God's Word. So that, for example, someone who has never heard the gospel never read the scriptures, never heard the scriptures, has no knowledge of Christ. Um, God does not save them apart from special revelation. Um, the reason behind that, for example, uh, maybe not the reason behind it, but, but for example, um, where is the impetus to take the gospel to dark and, and dangerous places of the world if we believe that, well, even apart from the Scriptures, God could give them inner light and save them. So, I hope that's clear, but absolutely God works above and beyond means, but He works through the revelation of His Word. I mean, we've all read accounts. of I mean, I, I remember a famous Puritan account Um, it might have been Spurgeon actually who recounts um, there was an an 80 year old man who was saved Um, he he heard a sermon when he was like 8 or 9 years old and one day he's walking through the fields and just in his memory he remembers what was said and he was brought to conviction and he comes to the church Spurgeon or whoever it was and says all these years I haven't heard any preaching all these years but I heard that you know and he was saved. And we've read accounts of, of people you know, finding a, a page from the book of Romans washed up on shore. And that's all they have. And they read it and they're converted. Um, so that's not the normal means of sending a preacher and proclaiming a gospel. But it means that the word of God has its effect. Um, and so in that, in that sense, I, I believe you're absolutely right. Chandler? Chandler? Yeah. Dream itself, it's safe, it's still, it's yeah. Dream yeah. Dreams and visions are, are are very prominent in that culture and in Islam, and so there's a lot of accounts of of Muslims coming to faith through j- dreams of that nature. Uh, and yes, I agree with you that when you examine those, um, there, there's there's always some sort of hearing or reading the scriptures in their past that comes up. Um, but yeah, it's an example of God working above and outside normal the normal means of conversion. All right, let's uh, speed through this, and we'll we'll have a few more minutes for questions. Uh, Paul concludes this section. He turns to Israel, beginning in verse sixteen through twenty-one. Let's let's read it again. But after answering all those how questions, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself... to, to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The question, if this golden chain of sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling upon the Lord is the way of salvation, rather than circumcision and obedience to the law, why aren't more Israelites saved? And so he dives into Israel's unbelief here. Israel's unbelief. Much of Israel re- remained condemned because, verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Is this something new is the first question he answers. And he says, look, look at their history. Isaiah says, who has believed what they have heard from us. So here's this hearing again. In Isaiah's day, and nobody believes him. So Paul is saying what is true in Isaiah's day is true now as well. This is not something new. And as he will go on to argue, Israel is hardened to the gospel, and they have always been hardened to the gospel. This is, you know, this section of Romans is why some people say that that, Paul was anti Semitic. He was Against the Jews, Which is the op- opposite of what he says. But what he does say very clearly is, look, they're hardened to the gospel. They've rejected it. And they always have. Only a small remnant of Israel has ever been saved. But the c- objection at this point would be, okay, um, they haven't obeyed the gospel. Maybe they haven't heard the gospel. You have to hear it in order to believe it. Paul answers that. Have they not heard? Verse 18. Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul quotes Psalm 19. It speaks of the natural revelation of God. And he emphasizes how widespread the gospel has been preached to Israel. It's gone out to all the earth. Everyone's heard their words. So a lack of hearing the gospel is not the answers to answer to Israel's unbelief. They can't claim ignorance. Another objection, well, maybe they didn't understand the gospel when it was preached. They heard it, but it didn't, they didn't understand it. And to that, he concludes and says, in verse 19 through 21, that's not true either. On the basis of the Old Testament. God purposed to make Israel jealous, and Israel has responded to that with disobedience and rejection. Now, to bring all this to a conclusion here, Israel's unbelief, they haven't obeyed, it's not something that's new. It's not because they haven't heard the gospel. It's not because they haven't understood the gospel. It's because, first, it's part of God's plan. This is where He's going to go in the next chapter. It's God's sovereign decision to withhold mercy, to harden Israel. But that's not it. You can't just say that and walk away. It's also because they are unwilling to turn to the Lord, which is man's responsibility. God's hardening, and it's man's responsibility. It's both. It's not one or the other. And that helps us draw some conclusions here. God is sovereign in salvation, but He uses means. God is sovereign in salvation, but we are still responsible for our sin, our actions, and our refusal to believe. And this... um, Um, works both ways it works positively in sending and preaching to see converts and it works negatively as well in refusal to believe or call upon the name of christ it's sinful man's responsibility there so in that way i want to say the scriptures affirm both god's sovereignty and man's responsibility And we are to hold them both in tension. They're both true, even if we can't see exactly where they meet. And I will be clear in saying that when most people speak of free will and God gives everybody a chance, but then they say, well, yeah, God is sovereign too. Typically, they mean something very different than what I'm saying here. God is absolutely sovereign. Paul said so in the clearest terms. He chose before the foundation of the world some to be saved, others he did not. He softens some, he hardens others. God is absolutely sovereign. No one is saved unless God sovereignly chose them and sovereignly chooses to save them. But that does not mean that man is not responsible. That's what I'm saying here. We are responsible, we are guilty even if we, re- if, if we reject this offer of saving grace. Um, If you want to read more on this, I'd recommend this little booklet, very easy to read, by Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Just one little quote here in regards to evangelism. He says, far from inhibiting evangelism, faith in the sovereignty of God's government and grace is the only thing that can sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not to be daunted by temporary setbacks. We evangelize because we believe God is sovereign. And we evangelize because we believe God uses our evangelism to save sinners. And we evangelize because we believe that man is responsible. That's a big subject, but that's an overview of it, kind of just in summary. Any last questions or comments or thoughts on that?